Is it morally wrong for God to be jealous? What about for us? Is it immoral for us to be jealous about things? We're going to talk about this today and a lot more on BibleStudyPodcast.org, starting now. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to BibleStudyPodcast.org. Today is Thursday, July the 2nd of 2009, and as always, I am your host, Toby Logsdon, and I want to welcome you guys to our next lesson in our Knowing God series. What can we know about God? Well, that's what we're figuring out in this series that we're doing, and uh, we've been going on for quite a while now. We've been going since October, so obviously there's a lot that we can know about God based on Scripture and reason, and this is just one of the things uh, that we're going to be covering today, and that is God's jealousy. Before we get started, I wanted to share with you guys uh, just a quick story of something that I ran into uh, yesterday. Uh, you know, I, I tell you guys that you guys can send me your questions, and don't get me wrong, I am always more than happy to take your questions. I, I like getting questions from you guys, because I like uh, being able to give you guys an answer, and show you guys how I develop an answer for things, and, and so on and so forth. You know, I, I like getting questions from you guys. And yesterday I got a question from somebody on Facebook, and uh, you know, this is somebody who uh, is in my network, or one of my friends on Facebook, and he's also one of our listeners. And apparently somebody had uh, posted something on his board, on his profile, uh, and that was Exodus chapter 21, verses 20 through 21. And so he wrote to me asking if I could just quickly explain what this was, or explain what the verse was basically saying. And there are two uh, two things that I, that I want to say. First of all, um, you know, what if I wasn't there? Uh, I want you guys to be able to explain this type of thing if I'm not there uh, to immediately give you an answer. And secondly, uh, I get kind of backed up with email sometimes, so I can't always get back to people uh, through email right away. So with that being said, you know, again, I don't mind getting questions from you guys. I like getting questions from you guys. But let's go ahead and take a look at what this, uh, what these two verses say. Exodus chapter 21, verses 20 and 21. Here we read, If a man strikes his male or female slave with a rod, and he dies at his hand, he shall be punished. If, however, he survives a day or two, no vengeance shall be taken, for he is his property. So that's Exodus chapter 21, verses 20 and 21. And basically, he's asking me, how do I explain this to an unbelieving friend? Well, here's the thing. You have a couple options here. You don't have to give them just an outright explanation for that verse when somebody presents a verse like this to you. And don't worry, this lesson's not going to be long today or anything, so we've got a little bit of time to kill here. But here's what I would suggest. Instead of just giving them an explanation, I mean, this is actually a very easy uh, passage to explain. Um, You know, this verse is discussing the penalty for personal injury. Actually, that's what this whole passage is discussing. In verses 18 and 19, we see that the person who's responsible for whatever losses another person has because somebody else causes them injury, and that injury prevents them from working, well, the person who caused the injury is liable for whatever that other person lost out on. So here in verses 20 and 21, there are two things that are, are really being said. First of all, no murder goes unpunished. 
uh, whether that is murdering another person like your brother or your father or a friend or whether it's a slave. And that is a lot different from how the Egyptians treated the Israelites as slaves when they were down in Egypt. Uh, so that's that's something to consider. The Hebrew people uh, were treated like dogs. And here the Bible is saying, you can't treat them like dogs. There's going to be a punishment if you kill them. And the second thing that we can note from this is that it's the slave owner who loses out since there's, you know, the, the, the slave is his property or uh, belongs to him doing work for him. And so if he hurts his slave so bad that the slave can't work, there's nobody to compensate for his losses. He's the one who takes the loss. But point one is very significant since God is instructing the Hebrew people to treat their slaves with moral dignity. But that's only one of your options, explaining this passage. That's only one of your options. The second option is this. Just ask him a question. Because the fact is, they posted this on his profile. This other friend of his posted it on his, uh, on his profile page for a reason. He's trying to get at something. So instead of just giving them an explanation, because you know what, if you do that, they'll just move on to the next passage, and to the next passage, and the next passage, and the next passage, and you'll just be going in circles. Don't waste your time like that. Here's what I would suggest. Instead of just giving them a flat-out answer for that passage, just say something like this. What are you trying to get at? And then go from there. See, the fact is, if they post something like that on your board, they're probably trying to get you into an argument about the morality of God. They're probably trying to say that God is evil, right? That's the underlying argument of him posting that on his profile. So if somebody wants to post that, say, what are you trying to get at? And then go from there. And don't forget the moral law, because we all recognize that there are things which are inherently evil, right? And the fact that we recognize these things is a great proof for God's existence. If somebody's going to be arguing, well, this is wrong, ask them, where does your sense of right and wrong come from? Right? I mean, you're putting the ball back in their court. Make them answer for their position. If they want to claim that God is evil, make them think about why they think God is evil. So the fact is, if there is a standard that's above and beyond us, we have to be thinking, well, where does that come from? That comes from God. That's the image of God in us telling us what's right and what's wrong. And every single one of us has it. This is one of the best things that you guys have on your side is the moral argument for God's existence. Keep that in your back pocket. Memorize it. Know it like the back of your hand. It's one of the best things that you can use when you're discussing your faith with people who don't share your faith. So anyway, that's just a short little story and a little bit of information, uh, advice, I guess, uh, for those of you who are out there interacting with people who don't share your faith. Speaking of which, our book of the month this month is Tactics by Greg Kokel. Uh, This is one of the best books I've ever read. I mean, this is up there with uh, conversational evangelism. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. This is a fantastic book. It goes over what Greg Kokel, who has a a talk radio show, and uh, I would strongly recommend you guys listen to that. But it goes over what he would uh, refer to as the Columbo tactic. That is, putting the ball back in the other person's court, asking questions, which is what conversational evangelism was all about, right? 
Well, this book will show you how to identify self-defeating statements. It'll show you how to, uh, how to steer a conversation toward evangelism. It's a fantastic book. I would definitely recommend this. And everybody who makes a tax-deductible donation of $50 or more this month to Clean Slate Evangelical Ministries, which, of course, is our ministry, is going to get this book sent to you. Uh, like I said, there are a few books that I would recommend more than this one. And I just read this one, just finished it up a couple days ago. And man, I, I am just, I, I'm so excited to have conversations with people who don't share my faith. It, it almost makes me miss being a dealer in Las Vegas, which is one thing that was actually good about Vegas. And that is that I was always sharing Jesus with people while I was dealing, uh, especially the last year that I was dealing. And I learned how to steer a conversation in an evangelistic way. But man, if only I would have had this book. <laughs> that's uh, that's 2020, right? Anyway, let's go ahead and get started with our lesson today. Most of you are probably familiar with Oprah Winfrey. Uh, she's the host of one of the most popular television talk shows in all of history, actually, not just in America, but around the world. She has millions upon millions of people tuning in to watch her show each and every day. And those of you who are familiar with her are also probably aware of the fact that she is probably the most single prominent advocate for the New Age movement, which uh, which is a religious movement, which has come out of the occult over the past uh, 30 to 100 years. But it's really characterized by, among other things, what we would call religious syncretism. Now, religious syncretism is basically the attempt to synchronize or synthesize two or more religious views. If you've ever heard uh, someone tell you that all roads lead to God, yes, that's religious pluralism, but that's also what we would call religious syncretism. Well, not surprisingly, this is one of the core religious beliefs that Oprah Winfrey has as well. In fact, in one episode of the Oprah Winfrey show, which you can find on YouTube, it's all over YouTube, she was called out by an evangelical Christian woman who asked Oprah, how do you please God? And Oprah's response was to say this, There are many ways and many paths to what you call God. And Oprah would go on to say, There couldn't possibly be just one way. So how did Oprah Winfrey get to this type of theology? Well, Oprah reports that she grew up in a traditional Baptist church, and that one day, the pastor gave a sermon on the jealousy of God. Well, Oprah apparently couldn't conceive of how a good, loving God could possibly be jealous. She didn't believe that God was jealous, but she did believe that he's all-loving. And so thus she fell into the New Age tendency to synchronize multiple religions. After all, if God isn't jealous, then why should he care how a person worships him as long as they have the right heart? And actually, that's pretty much uh, the gist of what she was saying in that clip on YouTube uh, that you guys can take a look at. Well, the fact is that God is indeed jealous, and we're not welcome to worship him on whatever terms we choose. Just like the people who are having their houses foreclosed on during these, uh, you know, really tough, strenuous economic times don't have the freedom to pay off the bank on their own terms, you know, it's the bank which determines the terms by which the foreclosure can be avoided since the debt is owed to the bank. But in the same way, our sin has put us in debt to the holy and righteous God who created all things. Because we're in debt to him, and because he owns all things, since he created all things, we must worship him by the terms that he has provided, the terms that he has given us. 
and he made it as simple as he possibly could without violating his own goodness and without violating the free will of human beings. The gospel is just this. Just believe that I love you enough that I myself was willing to become a man named Jesus and that I was willing to suffer on the cross and die for you. That's God giving us the gospel. It's that simple. He became a man named Jesus, and he died to pay the debt that we owe to God for our sin. And those who believe in him will receive eternal life. That is the gospel. It couldn't get any more simple than that. Just believing, putting your faith in Jesus. Now, the fact that God is jealous, however, does raise some serious questions, especially for anyone who thinks that jealousy is always a bad thing which it certainly can be. Jealousy can be a bad thing under some circumstances, but is jealousy always an evil thing? Are pure, infinite love and jealousy compatible, or are they mutually contradictory? Well, first of all, we should establish a working definition of the word jealous. What do we mean when we say that God is jealous? Well, it basically refers to the act of desiring something or being zealous about something. And when we apply this term to God, we're saying that God has a holy and righteous desire to protect his own supremacy and that he uh, that He desires that everything that belongs to him be kept holy and set apart for him. We should also note that this is a moral attribute and that, as such, it's something that we as human beings can and do experience as well. And there are numerous passages in Scripture which describe or define God as being jealous. Now, the best way to examine these passages will be to develop an understanding of three things. First of all, the nature of God's jealousy. Secondly, the subject of God's jealousy. And third, the object of God's jealousy. Now, when we're talking about the nature of God's jealousy, we have to understand that it implies anger, it implies fury and wrath. You know, we find a relationship between God's jealousy and his fury in verses like Zechariah chapter 8, verse 2, where we read, This is what the Lord Almighty says, I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. Of course, this comes as a call to repentance to Israel, uh, you know, for Israel to repent since she has fallen away from God. Well, why was God jealous then? Because Israel belonged to him and he had set them apart for himself. So that's the nature of God's jealousy. The subject of God's jealousy or the things which provoke his jealousy would be things like images, idols, false gods, and sin. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses uh, 19 through 22, we read, Do I mean, then, that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of the pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And then Paul goes on to say, Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Well, obviously, what Paul is saying here is that God's jealousy is aroused by his people worshiping false gods or idols. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 16, we read, They made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. And here the Israelites were worshiping false gods and thus provoked God's jealousy. We also know that sin provokes God's jealousy. In 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 22, we read, Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. By the sins they committed, they stirred up his jealous anger more than their fathers had done. So these types of things would be considered the subject of God's jealousy. Now, the object of God's jealousy is primarily his own holy and righteous nature, since that must be protected. But other objects of God's jealousy include everything which belongs to him. 
including his name, his people, his land, and even his city, Jerusalem. Yes, God is so jealous of his own name, in fact, that the Bible tells us that his name is jealous. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 14, we read, Do not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. He's also jealous of his land and his city. In Zechariah chapter 1, verse 14, we read, Proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. We find the same thing in Joel chapter 2, verse 18, where we read, Then the Lord will be jealous for his land and take pity on his people. And so thus we understand that the objects of God's jealousy include anything and everything which rightfully belongs to him. Dr. Norman Geisler uh, talked about God's jealousy in his Systematic Theology Volume 2 book, which is what this study is based on. But in this book, he presents a syllogism to defend and explain God's jealousy. First, he notes, God is unique and supreme. Secondly, God is holy, loving, and morally perfect. Third, hence, God is uniquely and supremely holy, loving, and morally perfect. Fourth, whatever is supremely holy, loving, and perfect is to be preserved with the utmost zeal. Fifth, God's jealousy is his zeal to preserve his own holy supremacy. Sixth, and finally, therefore, he is eminently justified in his jealousy. And again, this is the argument that Dr. Norman Geisler presents for God's jealousy. This is what justifies God's jealousy. Well, the Christian faith has long held God to be a jealous God uh, from its inception. Tertullian wrote that, quote, even his severity then is good because it is just. When the judge is good, that is just. Other qualities likewise are good, by means of which the good work of a good severity runs out its course, whether wrath or jealousy or sternness. End quote. Augustine wrote, quote, Be it far from us to surmise that the impassable nature of God is liable to any molestation, but like as he is, jealous without any darkening of spirit, so he is patient without aught of passion. End quote. He also wrote, For of a truth the jealous God himself rebukes the woman who commits fornication against him as the type of an erring people, and says that he gave her lovers what belonged to him, and again received from them what was not theirs, but his. End quote. Martin Luther also wrote extensively on God's jealousy, writing, quote, God is jealous in two manners of ways. First, God is angry as one that is jealous of them that fall from him and become false and treacherous, that prefer the creature before the creator. And he goes on to say, secondly, God is jealous for them that love him and highly esteem his word. Such God loves again, defends and keeps as the apple of his eye, and resists their adversaries, beating them back, that they are not able to reform what they intended. Therefore, this word jealous comprehends both hatred and love, revenge and protection, for which cause it requires both fear and faith, faith that we will provoke not God to anger, faith that in trouble we believe he will help, nourish, and defend us in this life, and will pardon and forgive our our sins, and for Christ's sake, preserve us to life everlasting. Jonathan Edwards wrote, quote, The wounded soul is sensible that he has affronted the majesty of God, and looks upon God as a vindication of his honor, as a jealous God that will not be mocked, as an infinitely great God that will not bear to be affronted. End quote. And he would go on to write, When men come to be under convictions and to be made sensible that God is not as they have heretofore imagined, but that he is a jealous, sin-hating God, 
God and whose wrath against sin is so dreadful, they are much more apt to have sensible exercises of enmity against him than before. End quote. So clearly, uh, God's jealousy is something which the Christian faith has consistently attributed to God throughout the ages. But this brings us back to the very objection that Oprah Winfrey had that we talked about at the beginning of this lesson, and that is this. Isn't jealousy an evil thing? Isn't it morally wrong to be jealous or to feel jealousy? And if so, why should God hold a double standard which allows him to be jealous, but not us? Well, the answer is pretty simple. You know, sometimes jealousy is justified and righteous, and sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it's holy and righteous, and sometimes it's evil. For us, it's wrong to be jealous of something which does not belong to us. That's called coveting. But God can't ever be jealous of anything which doesn't belong to him, since everything in all of creation does belong to him. He made it, and thus it's his to be jealous of. Psalm 24 verse 1 proclaims, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For us, as uh, as human beings, there's a godly jealousy and there is an ungodly jealousy, depending on the subject and the object of our jealousy. Is it evil for a wife to be jealous of her husband and vice versa? Absolutely, since they're united uh, and thus belong to each other. But is it morally justifiable for a man to be jealous of a woman who's already married to another man? No, that's not morally justifiable. And in fact, this type of jealousy is indeed evil, since it's a privation or a misuse of something that's good, and that is God's holy jealousy. The object of uh, of this man's jealousy, the man who's jealous of a woman who's married, the object of this man's jealousy is something or someone that doesn't belong to him. So with this in mind, you know, there is clearly absolutely nothing immoral or evil about God's jealousy. His jealousy is a holy and a righteous jealousy, which is perfectly compatible with the fact that he's also good, and he's also all-loving, and he's also morally perfect. So I hope that clears up any uh, confusion that you guys might have had about this uh, this issue. And if somebody talks about God's jealousy as an objection with you, now you kind of know where to come from uh, when you're talking about it. You know, sometimes jealousy can be good, sometimes it can be bad, depending on the object and the subject of jealousy. So anyway, I did want to remind you guys just real quick before we uh, before we close this out that estudiosbiblicospodcast.org is now up and running. These are our Spanish translations of our Romans series uh, for starters uh, that we're going to be uh, that we're going to be having, but estudiosbiblicospodcast.org is now up and running with Romans chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. Same lesson that we had back in the day except in Spanish. So praise the Lord for that. Uh, we've already had a, a pretty considerable number of people listen. So, man, I'm excited about that. Praise the Lord. Anyway, God bless you guys, and thank you so much for listening today. I'll see you next time on BibleStudyPodcast.org. Keep growing closer to Jesus. <laughs>